0: Balthasar Garcia was a, a 17th century Jesuit preacher and philosopher, and, and he was what I, I think you could call obsessed. He was obsessed with this whole concept of wisdom. He spent his entire life reading about it and, and applying it and even writing a book about it, one that became quite well known. It was called The Art of Wisdom, 300 Laws to Live By. When you read through some of these laws, and, and these laws can actually can actually be quite good. In fact, when you put your Christi- Christian classes on, you can actually see his Christian influence as a as a Jesuit preacher on these laws that he wrote. His his whole goal in writing this book. His whole goal was was by these 300 laws, if you follow them, it will help you to lead a happy, effective and successful life. You see that in some of the laws that he wrote, this Christian influence, but then you get to some of the other laws and you're kind of left scratching your head and wondering, how in all of the world could a man who was a Christian, let alone a Christian preacher, how could he even sign off on some of these things? I mean, they're just just bonkers. Like Law 147, for example. Law 147, I actually have to look at what these are because they get kind of like confusing when you're translating them. Law 147, let someone else take the hit. In other words, in other words, get really good at using a scapegoat, right? So that no matter the situation that you're in, you can throw off anything bad that happens in your life and then you come out kind of looking squeaky clean, right? How about law 189? Law 189 says, capitalize on others' misfortunes, right? This is coming from a Christian who says this is wisdom, right? Capitalize on others' misfortunes. In other words, Use other people's bad situations to your advantage so you can get what you want. Create and maintain the dependency on you. Awful stuff, right? How about one more? Law 213, feign doubt to pry secrets out of people. When somebody is telling you something, keep acting in this state of constant disbelief. Constant disbelief. Because the more in disbelief that you act, the more people are going to be willing to try to convince you that what they are saying is true until a point where they pry out of where, where they're willing to give you their deepest secrets and darkest passions, which is what you're after in the first place, because that gives you leverage over them. This is terrible stuff. And I think you can probably identify what is the inherent problem with laws like this. Now, I will be the first to admit that many in the world wouldn't see an issue with some of this stuff right it's why 500 years later when you look out at the world some form of Garcia's 300 laws exist so they're probably couched in in gentler and kinder terms because that's the kind of society we live in it's kinder and gentler but as as a christian what is the inherent problem that you see with with laws like that that we just read they are all carried out at the expense of or to the detriment of other people. But for Garcia, worldly wisdom is all about you getting ahead and doing whatever you have to do to become more powerful, more successful, more popular, more rich. And it doesn't matter what it costs you to get it. It doesn't matter who it hurts. It doesn't matter who it's at the expense of. Maybe in simpler terms, worldly wisdom is all about ambition and getting what you want. Right? Ambition is hailed by many as as a virtue, isn't it? We're taught by by many, or we're taught since the time that we're young, that you need to dream big, you need to reach for the stars, you need to set these audacious goals for yourself, all in the name of ambition. But you need to have something that you can that can drive your life, that can move you forward, and this is only solidified as we're as we're told in college and in the workplace. That in order to live what is considered to be the American dream, right? And that has many different definitions, but in order to live what is considered to be the American dream, then you have to make a name for yourself, you have to rise above your peers, and you can't let anyone, anyone stand in your way. By the head nodding, I I think some of you are at least partially familiar with this. Now, on the outset, ambition can be a God pleasing thing. And in fact, to have no ambition is called what? It's called laziness, which is one of the seven deadly sins. So where does the the pendulum of ambition swing to where it moves from being something that's God-pleasing, that God actually wants you to have, to swing over to a thing that is not God-pleasing, a thing that you could even consider to be evil? Well, that transition happens when ambition becomes Less about the the advancement of the kingdom of God, less about loving God, less about serving and loving others, and and all about you. Ambition ceases to become God-pleasing when it becomes selfish. And this is exactly what worldly wisdom purports as the most important thing. Ambition that is all driven toward yourself. Now as 21st century disciples of Jesus, It's so easy for us to fall prey to this mindset that worldly wisdom has and and to be enticed by everything that worldly wisdom promises you. As Jesus' disciples, we live in the world and we worship in the world and we play in the world and we work in the world, but we are not of the world. But because we live in the world, we, we are bombarded by these competed and varying ideas for what wisdom is and what it means to live wisely. Now, there are some times where, as God's people, so filled with the Holy Spirit, we actually have a good grasp on what godly wisdom is. But there are other times when we're competing with with, uh, the world's definition of wisdom for what somebody like Balthazar Garcia says is wisdom, and we're kind of left scratching our heads and wondering, how do I, as a Christian, how do I, as a Christian who lives in the world but is not of the world, live wisely? How do I have wisdom? Well, this is where the letter, James' letter to Christians in the New Testament, this is where James' letter comes in handy. Because in the the middle of his letter, James uh, breaks down the two different kinds of wisdom that exist, right? Worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And as he breaks this down, he explains the folly of, of worldly wisdom. And he really gets to the heart of the true beauty of living under heavenly wisdom. Now, James is a fascinating character in New Testament history. Do you remember who James is? He's Jesus' brother. James is Jesus' brother, and what are the, the brothers of Jesus probably best known for? For thinking he's a sham. Right? Here you have these guys who grew up with Jesus, who were trained to be a carpenter like Jesus by their father. And when in in the middle of John chapter seven, when Jesus is doing his his thing as the Son of God, the brothers the brothers say, Jesus, you should you should just come home. Stop doing whatever it is that you're doing out there and come back and be a carpenter like the rest of us. This is what you're supposed to do. We're told that Jesus' brothers, including a man named James, none of them believed in Jesus. But thankfully, the grace of God softened the heart of James and he, became, he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior from sin. Now later on, James becomes a very influential member of the early Christian church. He's the leader of the all-important church in Jerusalem, and not long after he comes into, comes to be the the lead pastor there. I think is what you'd call him. Uh, a man by the name of Stephen is stoned to death for his faith, and this causes Jewish converts to Christianity who are living and worshiping in Jerusalem to, to uh, be scattered throughout the known world to to avoid this persecution. And so, as the pastor of this church, James has a heart not only for the sheep who stuck around, but for the sheep who are scattered. And so he uses this letter that he writes to these scattered sheep as a, as a way to instruct them and encourage them in their Christian walk. Now, in order to do that, James, he covers all sorts of topics. And really what J- the letter of James is, and this is what makes it unique for compared to the rest of the New Testament letters. The book of James is, is really a guide to practical Christian living. He really is writing at at the intersection of where faith and life meet because he wants God's people, both first century and 21st century, he wants these people whose hearts are shaped and molded by the gospel to understand how it is that they are to live out that faith in this world. And to do that, he covers things like the importance of of hearing and, and putting into practice the law of God. He covers things like the importance of taming the tongue, in other words, keeping your mouth under control because, because it can get you into big trouble. He talks about dangers that arise within the community of God's people, things like showing favoritism to others or breaking the Eighth Commandment or gossiping. But, but in the very middle of his, of his letter, James dives into the topic of wisdom. And he starts with a rhetorical question. Who among you Who among you is wise and understanding? And then he sort of answers the question for you. If you want to claim to be wise, if you claim to be understanding, then then this is how people are going to know it. You show that you are wise and understanding by living a good life, by doing deeds carried out in the humility of wisdom. Now, James, eventually he gets to the nitty gritty of what living the good life actually looks like. What what doing deeds carried out in the humility of wisdom actually looks like. But before you can ever really get into the nitty-gritty of the, the practicality of, wi- of living out wisdom like that, you kind of got to understand the point that James is making with that question and that explanation. You see, if you and I, if we claim to be wise, we can try to do that. We can try to claim to have true wisdom, uh, a wisdom that James later explains come from heaven. But unless... Unless that wisdom that fills our heart manifests itself in our day-to-day lives, unless we show that wisdom by how we are living, James says, well, you're not wise at all. Because wisdom always manifests itself in outward action. A person who claims to be wise but doesn't actually show it with their lives, doesn't actually show it by living the good life that God calls you to live, by living or carrying out deeds done in in the humility of wisdom, James says you aren't wise, and in, or at least you don't have the kind of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that James is talking about. Because wisdom, whatever wisdom that you are laying hold to, whatever wisdom fills your heart and captivates your mind, that will manifest itself in some way. It always will. And so, to figure out what kind of wisdom is captivating your heart and filling your mind, the easiest way to tell is. Look at your life. Look at the way that you are living. Now, James talks about, about the folly of the wrong kind of wisdom, the folly of earthly wisdom that you and I are so prone to falling prey to. I mean he speaks about it in such a stark way. Look at how he says this in in the middle of our, our reading for today. James three says, If if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James is pretty clear that if you look at your life and you see a manifestation of worldly wisdom in the two ways that he says, he says, you've got to kind of watch out for how you're living because the two primary ways that worldly wisdom manifests itself outwardly by what we do is selfish ambition and bitter envy and we all know what those are right bitter envy or another way to talk about that jealousy it's that emotion that wells up in your heart when you look at what somebody else has or even who somebody else is and you want to have that because you don't have it and then that often morphs into, that emotion morphs into the outward action of criticism, right? Take like, uh, take your neighbor down the road who pulls up in a, this is just an illustration, but pulls up in a new Tesla, right? Even a gearhead like me, who loves working on traditional combustion engines, thinks that Teslas are pretty awesome. And they're readily available, but they're expensive, right? They're, at least a guy like me can't afford a Tesla. But you, you look at that guy, plus all of the other toys and everything else he has in his house, and, and instead of just thanking God for all of the blessings that he showered out on this individual, your jealousy morphs, it says, it tries to make you say, I want this, but then morphs into criticism, and you, you end up saying kind of nasty things like, well, that dude must be up to, up to his eyeballs in debt in order to afford all of that. He's going he's gonna to go broke. But that's an extreme example. Maybe more practical, you see the the man or the woman in your workplace, whatever your career is. It's that that person who is gregorious and well liked and extroverted and incredibly talented. It's the kind of person that that from the first time you meet and you talk with them, you kind of know that they're going places. And instead of thanking God for not only the setting he placed them in, but all of the gifts that he gave them to to be able to serve him in this way, your your jealousy morphs into criticism and and often behind their back, you whisper with coworkers, I wonder who they had to cozy up with to get where, they're, to get where they are. I wonder who they had to suck up to or brown nose to, or they don't deserve X, Y, and Z. And sadly, this kind of stuff doesn't just happen in the workplace or with your neighbors, it can actually happen in the church. A guy like me whose job is church has a tendency to look at other churches and see their success or their popularity, whether numerically or otherwise. And and you kind of play the comparison game a little bit, and it's really easy for a man like me to become jealous. And that jealousy morphs into the criticism of questioning their motives and practice instead of just saying to God, I'm glad you're blessing ministry in that way over there. It's not just like as you look at all of Christendom, it's as you look at the people around you in your local church you see the people who are spiritually mature. You see the people who, who help lead the church. You see the people who end up spending a lot of time with a guy like me. And, and instead of just thanking God for, for him putting these people in your life and, and for coming together as a church family, you, you kind of say nasty things in criticism, often behind their backs. I wonder how much he gives in order to have a position like that. I wonder what he did to spend so much time with with pastor or with the leadership. It must have been something pretty bad because nothing else warrants that kind of attention. Like, sadly, this stuff exists. Sadly, it is something that is all too common within Christendom. And this is the the problem and the folly with worldly wisdom when it takes root, is that it drives a wedge between God's people. Right. This is all done in the name of bitter envy and selfish ambition, because selfish ambition is not far behind when jealousy is found in the heart of God's people that term that James uses for selfish ambition it's it's a term that that Aristotle have you guys all heard the name Aristotle a Greek philosopher it's a term that Aristotle uses to describe factional and narrow-minded politicians whose only desire and goal it is in life is to get money and power and wealth they are so consumed by it that all they want to do that they're willing to do just about anything to get to that position of power. And once they have it, they'll do anything that they can to maintain it. They are willing to step on and even go as far as, if you think of the case of Julius Caesar, go as far as killing the guy in charge so that you can get ahead. Right? Ambition. Ambition for the Christian can be a good thing. But often in our pursuit to get ahead, in our pursuit to get the things that we want in our within the world or within the church, we are willing to ruin good names and trample on people and throw them under the bus or as as Balthasar Garcia encouraged, use them as scapegoats, right? All for something that might benefit us in the long run. All in the name of ambition. This is what worldly wisdom tells you is most important. To be ambitious, to be driven, to get what you want, but Do you remember what James called this kind of wisdom? Earthly, which we, I think, understand unspiritual. And then that last one is quite shocking, demonic. Selfish ambition and envy is what got Satan and his minions in trouble and thrown out from heaven in the first place, isn't it? They not only wanted God's power, they not only wanted to be like God, they wanted to be God himself. And so when James says that that this wisdom is demonic. He's not saying that this wisdom is from demons. He's literally talking about this being the kind of wisdom that, that on a daily basis, since they fell, has consumed their hearts and minds and souls. So can you even call that wisdom? Can you even say, if this is something that is demonic, can you call that wisdom? Well, James says, no, it's, it's folly. Because the only thing that this kind of demonic wisdom can lead to is disorder and and every evil thing. Wherever you have selfish ambition, wherever you have bitter envy, the only things that you will find are chaos and disorder. And not only that, but James says this kind of wisdom is morally corrupted and morally worthless. In fact, if you look at every sort of moral degradation that you see out in the world today, do you know where its roots are? Bitter envy and selfish ambition the cause of every evil thing. And so I think the, the thing that we have to ultimately get down to is this kind of worldly wisdom, with all of its enticing promises and offers, is it worth the cost that it brings? Is it worth it to get where you want in life, to have success, however you would define it? to Have the money, the power, the, the toys, whatever it might be. Is it worth it if the only thing that's left behind you is a trail of broken hearts and ruined reputations and trampled souls. Is it worth it? James would say absolutely not. It's folly. And the reason it's not worth it is because wisdom, while it prom- worldly wisdom, while it promises you all sorts of blessings and benefits, the only thing that can a- it can actually leave you is sadness and loneliness and a life that is in eternal danger. And so if you and I want to be able to answer the question, who is wise and understanding among you and say, it's me, then we have to listen to what James says. Because what James has to say about wisdom and the beauty of life under wisdom is vitally important for for our daily Christian lives. And he says that that wisdom, that that, uh, true wisdom to live under, that wisdom, it comes down from heaven. It's not a wisdom that's some divine secret that we need to uncover. This kind of wisdom can't be discovered by, by human searching or, or unveiled by human reason. This kind of wisdom, it's got to come from God. It's got to, and, and the way that God gives it to us is through the faith that he plants in our hearts. This is the only way that James can make the claim that he does about wisdom. I mean, look at what he says at, in verse 17. This, this wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all what? It's pure It's pure. In other words, it's holy. And the only way that James can make that claim is if its source, if the source of true wisdom is actually God. And God instills this kind of wisdom in our heart and uses it to guide and to instill in us what it means to live the good life, to carry out deeds done in humility. And he says, when you are filled with this kind of true wisdom, a wisdom that comes down from heaven, it affects you in three different ways. It affects your disposition. It affects your outward actions and it affects your constancy. Right? Listen to how James describes this wisdom. He says, He says, But wisdom that comes down from heaven is peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What James is saying is, is that for the man and woman and child of God who lives under the true wisdom that comes from God? Your natural disposition is one that loves peace more than the strife and discord that worldly wisdom offers. James is saying for the one who lives under the beauty of true wisdom that your natural disposition is one that is is considerate, that is caring, that is gentle, that is is willing to be easily persuaded, not in a bad way, but but to be persuaded and to yield your desires and wants so that you can care for the desires and wants of other people and when this is your natural disposition to be peace loving and considerate and submissive to others this then affects how you interact with other people right he says then this changes how you look at people because now you look at people not for for where they come from or the color of their skin or their social economic status or or even what they do for a living even whether they're christian or not Instead, you look at everybody the same way through the lens of a very active compassion. And this active compassion helps you to live the kind of life that God calls you to live. What James says is, is bearing good fruit. Bearing good fruit is just living the life that God wants you to live. Not only only loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but, but loving your neighbor as yourself, right? When you are actively compassionate for somebody, All of the sudden, you care for guarding the gift of life that God has given them, for guarding the possessions that God has given them, for guarding the marriage that God has blessed them with, for guarding the relationships that they have, right? This is what you do. And it's not just that you do it every so often. He says this happens in an unwavering manner, that you are constantly doing this. So much so that that when people look at you, and, and see the way that they act and interact with you. They're not wondering if you're duplicitous or hypocritical or, or how you act when you walk out these doors or, or when you leave their company. Instead, what they see is this, that, that with you, Christian, what you see is what you get. That this is just naturally how you are. You, you naturally love and care and honor people. And the reason that we're motivated to live what, what James calls the good life it's not because we're trying to gain some recognition from God to get a pat on the back or make up for something that we've done. That's, that's just legalism, right, in its purest form. So instead, the reason that we do this is because we're motivated by something different than what worldly wisdom is motivated by. We're not motivated by success and wealth and power. We're motivated by the one who came and lived perfectly, who was wholly wise who was meek and humble and lowly. We do this because we're motivated by Jesus. We're motivated by that message of the gospel for what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. That that message that says, God doesn't see all of the times that you and I give into the folly of worldly wisdom and try to go after the things that the world says. Instead, this message of the gospel, it says to you, well, here, God forgives. Here, God doesn't remember. Instead, what God does is he picks you up, he restores you by his grace, and he gives you the strength to live the good life he calls you to live, a life under the beauty of true wisdom. We don't do this because we think we have to. We do this because we want to and we understand the beauty of a life like this. I mean, do you, do you get the beauty of a life lived in true wisdom? you understand why that's beautiful? Life lived under the true wisdom that comes from heaven is a life that is, first and foremost, God-pleasing. It's beautiful. It's a life that puts your God-given faith on display, which in turn enables you to carry out the mission that Jesus has given you to advance his kingdom, which is to show people Jesus. Life lived under true wisdom is beautiful because, because you're no longer living for yourself. You're living to serve and love others. And you know what that does? That makes the world and your community and your church a better place to be. Life lived under true wisdom is a beautiful thing because, because it is not motivated by the here and now, but rather motivated by eternity and where you're going to be. It's motivated by, by the love of Jesus and by the gospel and the power that that gives you. right This is a beautiful life, not one that's caught up in the rat race, but rather one that's caught up in God's kingdom who understands that, the, that greatness in his kingdom. Is not about being first. It's about putting others first. Right? This is a beautiful life. God grant you the true wisdom that comes from heaven. Wisdom that enables you to live the good life. Wisdom that enables you to carry out deeds done in the humility of wisdom. Because that, my friends, that's beautiful. Amen.